Welcome to Coach House Talks. Lord Jesus, I just pray that uh, you would use my words to speak to us today, Lord. I pray that you would reveal to people what is important to hear, what is important to know, what is important to understand, Lord, and really take in for our lives today. Help us to understand the relevance of it for us, Lord, and the deep need we have as people for you and the problems that we have when we don't follow you. I thank you, Jesus, that you are with us and that you are powerful to show us uh, what we need in our lives. I thank you for these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So, yeah, um, as Andy indicated, yeah, it's, it's been a tricky month. Many of you may not have seen me around, actually, for quite a long time, partly because of a lot of, well, illness, COVID, insomnia, and also all sorts on my part. So uh, that's why I've, I've not been around as much as I would have liked to have been. Um, but, yeah, as Andy says, um, it's, to be honest, it's a reminder of our need for God. Um, and really, that's something that this story touches on today. Um, so we're just going to be taking off from where Andy finished, which was in Genesis 3. We've seen humanity fall from their initial very good position that they started out in. Um, and we wonder what's going to happen because there's been a break in a relationship between God and his creation, mankind. So I wonder, how do you respond to conflict? Um, when someone's done wrong to us, how do we deal with it? Is it, it could be calling it out, it could be refusing to interact, it could be gossip, it could be revenge. Um, I saw this great Twitter post a while back where this guy said, whenever someone says something I don't like or agree with, I just respond by saying, you know what, you're right. The person below in the next comment said, that's an awful idea. And he responded, you know what, you're right. <laughs> it's one of these things where, you know, sometimes we try and get around conflict. Sometimes we try to avoid it. Sometimes we try and sweep it under the rug. Um, but actually, we know that it's very, very present inside of creation. I heard this other story that I read a while ago in an article of this Japanese guy who um, he didn't speak to his wife for 20 years. But the irony of it was that they were living in the same house together. Eventually, through a series of events, um, their son managed them to get them to talk to one another and speak to one another again. Um, and after that, he said, uh, after this, there's no going back now, I guess. Once there's been that initiation um, of connection between those two people, once one person bothers to step out, that is the point where reconciliation can begin. And we see in this story of Genesis again and again, that God is the one who initiates this interaction with mankind. Mankind's really screwed up badly, but God is the one who initiates again and again to actually try and get back in contact with people who he's created who are wandering far away from him. And that's how we, we are able to function in a relationship. It can't work if, um, you know, if one person's refusing to interact. Um, so, uh, I think we should be switching to the timeline. Let's have a quick look at it. So I thought I'd just bring this up again just because it's a helpful model just to show us um, how the whole Bible sort of fits together. And as you can see, we're way over on the left-hand side with the creation, fall, and flood section. That's the section I'll be covering today. Well, not the creation bit, but the fall and flood section of it. Um, and that just shows... And that will take us through this journey and through this story. And then Andy will be moving on to that little transition point next week. Um, so that's just to say, sort of help us know where we're up to. I'll just give us a quick recap of what we saw in Genesis 3 that's led us up to the, these, this current point. So Adam and Eve have been cast out of the garden. They've been put under a curse, which means they're immortal and they die. 
They now have knowledge of good and evil, so it remains to be seen what they will actually do with this knowledge as time goes on. And notably, they still have the commission from God to be fruitful and multiply across the earth, and the stewards of the earth are meant to look after it, take care of it, and expand and build society from there on. And that's the point we left at. So let's get into Genesis 4 to 11. I won't be covering every chapter blow by blow, you might be happy to hear. We will just be picking out key sections that are relevant to the big picture story. So the first major story we encounter afterwards is that of Cain and Abel, uh, the, son, uh, the, the sons of Adam and Eve. Um, and it gives a small description of them before saying that they both come to a point where they offer sacrifices to God. And this is in uh, chapter 4, verse 4 to 7. And it says this about it. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. These verses show us two things which will show up in a big way over the next few chapters and actually across the whole Bible. The first thing is that sin is trying to control us. And the second is that God is always trying to reach out to us. So first of all, God notices the sinful desires in Cain and reaches out to him with questions that are meant to make him think and reconsider his position. And this is God's strategy for, well, not just in this story, but I think more generally for bringing us back to him and making us think about where we're up to. So he does make him think with his first questions. Why are you angry? Why is your face so downcast? And then he gives an offer of acceptance. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You will be accepted. And then he gives this warning. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God's clearly trying to reconcile Cain to himself. And he's highlighting in the first sort of case study of this knowledge of good and evil, where it's leading to. It's showing that the power of sin is active and real and alive in the world now. And the outcome of the story, many of us know. In the next verse, it says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. God reasons with a human being to get him to go the right way. But instead, Cain lets sin master him and goes in the opposite direction. And as you can see, it's not just that he goes a little bit off track, but we see that it's completely and wildly in the opposite direction. In fact, if you think of the command to be fruitful and multiply, instead of this multiplication, you're already seeing the first of these two brothers killing off the other one. So it's already going right back in the opposite direction. We see that sin is a force that human beings, including us today, must wrestle with. So it's important, again, to see how God responds to Cain in this situation, because, again, it governs the way that God keep, we see God keeping on interacting with sinful people, us today even, um, in the world. So he curses Cain to be a restless wanderer upon the earth. He doesn't kill him off. Um, Cain has the audacity to actually complain about it. Um, and it's, it's obviously, it's more than he deserves, and God doesn't kill him. <coughs> Um, ironically, he thinks that someone might take advantage of him and kill him. Um, so now there's this suspicion and there's this worry. Um, but even in his sin, God responds in grace. He says, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And if you think about it, this is not something that Cain deserved. He'd he just gone and killed his brother. But actually, 
even in our evil, even when humanity is seen at its worst, God is willing to interact, to try and interact with us in a way which restores us, which shows his grace and shows his character to us. So again, we see that main point that God is always trying to reach out to us. And this is a pattern that continues as we move into the main story, which is of uh, the story of Noah. It sets it up, and it also sets up much else that happens after it. And we're left wondering, was Cain just a bad apple? Was it just his problem, and how will mankind progress? So next we move into this genealogy, this chapter which just tells us and leads us through um, where we get up to before we get up to Noah. It shows a rather positive element of God's intention for people to grow and multiply across the earth. It kind of switches tone a little bit. I and mean, it says this in verses 1 and 2. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. And then Adam had another son that's in his image. And this is important for a couple of reasons. People are no less in the image of God because of the fall. And also it implies that people are meant to reflect the nature and the character of God in the way that they live as we are today. God puts great value in all people, even after they've fallen, and that applies to us today. He didn't just cast them off completely and write it off as, oh, it's mad, it can't be restored now, it's, you know, it's, it's a load of rubbish. It doesn't do that. So then we have Noah introduced at the end of this genealogy, um, in 5 verse 28 to 29, with a little more comment. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah, and he said, he will comfort us in the labor and the painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the, that the Lord has cursed. One way or another, Lamech notices this issue with mankind. It's perhaps the first verbalization we see of there is something very wrong in our world. There's something very, that has gone drastically wrong and we're feeling the effects of this curse. You see people, Lamech specifically, noticing this. And what also comes with that is he notices the need for a savior. And this is really the first instance of this in the Bible. Human beings are in need of rescue or comfort, as Lamech books, puts it. And this is a theme that continues again and again. Man is in a worse state than he was at the beginning, and he needs help to come from somewhere. And Noah is this first savior figure that we see in the Bible. And it's echoed all the way across the scriptures, all the way up to Jesus. So what we're going to do as we, as we get into the flood narrative is look at this sort of first movement of God to try and save humanity. And the way it ends, I think, is quite, um, quite counterintuitive and, quite, and, and not exactly what we'd expect. So first of all, let's get into Genesis 6, which really shows humanity taking a nosedive. Uh, and it introduces us to what has gone wrong and why this flood then happens later. Again, really it's an example of, like we see in the prodigal son in, in the New Testament, doesn't just do a little bit wrong, goes completely off the rails. Or a bit like when you see later on, Moses coming down the mountain just after he's spoken to God, and he sees people literally, you know, five minutes later just worshipping a golden calf. It's a bit, it's the same kind of scenario here. People have gone in the exact opposite direction that God has said, much like Cain, and they follow this as a pattern. And there are two sort of key things in this passage which indicate how far humanity went wrong and why the flood happened. 
Um, the first, re the first one of these things is that there's these very strange. It's a very strange passage of of these human sort of angelic hybrids around. It says in. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. It's a very strange passage and we don't have time to go into all the details of it. However, there does seem to be quite a clear point being made. And I think that point is the fact that before we saw this genealogy that was showing how man was meant to progress um, in God's image, he was made in God's image to reproduce God's image. And we're seeing here that it's been corrupted by these fallen angels, that they're coming, that they're coming in. And this is changing the dynamic of humans passing on their genes and, and being the people, the race that God wants them to be. It's a sign of corruption in this verse, and that's the main point. And further to that corruption, the second point is there's just a constant in in inclination to evil and violence. It says in verse 5, 6 verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. We see that what started with Cain has now become a pattern for humanity. We're seeing how this choice to have this knowledge of good, good and evil and walk away from God is actually playing out. And also in 6 verse 11, it says the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. There's quite a lot of references to violence in this. And I think, again, it's just showing that what happened with Cain has now escalated and, and gone global. So we saw this danger of sin mastering human beings, and now it seems that it's taken over everywhere. What do you think you do when confronted with all this mess? And for us as human beings, we're not perfect, and many of us have fallen into any number of different sins across our lifetime. Um, and for us, we could look at some of the things that were being done in that time and say, well, they're reprehensible, it's really terrible, whatever, murder, violence, immorality, corruption. We could look at that and say that, and that's, that would be right. But how much more do you think that would be the case for God, who is actually perfect, seeing all of this? He's made his creation very good and perfect, and he's a perfect and holy God. And suddenly he's seen his creation absolutely nosedive. I think you would expect him to completely destroy them, completely wipe them out and say, you know, all bets are off, it's over, it's finished. But God chooses to almost start again. It says in verse 7, The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them all the animals, birds, creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. It's a far cry from the very good creation at the beginning. But, importantly, we learn this in verses 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. He is the person, the chosen person, that God will use to save humanity. And to us today who know Jesus, doesn't that sound familiar? It's the first instance of God using someone to do this. The story of Noah is the first salvation story in the Bible. God judges humanity but he doesn't completely destroy humanity either. So, um, yeah, so the next slide is just, uh, sort of, we're just moving on to, the, moving on to sort of summarizing the flood. Um, we won't read through the whole story once again, um, but we'll look at its structure, which shows us what is most important in the story. But I'll just summarize it quickly for us first. Noah and his family and the pairs of animals enter the boat. 
The whole earth is flooded and springs of water burst out upon the earth. Rain comes down for 40 days and nights and everything is wiped out. After 150 days of flooding, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Noah slowly tests whether dry land has appeared by sending out birds and seeing if they return to him afterwards. Then eventually they come out of the boat and God makes a covenant agreement with him, which we'll look at a bit later. But let's look at the structure. So if you do the next slide, that'd be great. So you might look at this and think, hmm, Johnny's a theology student. This is, this is a bit dangerous seeing a slide like this. What, what's going on? But basically, I'm just going to explain it simply. This is the structure of the story, and it's quite important. You may see right in the middle over there, we see that God remembers Noah, and that is the center of the narrative. It's a really common structure we see in the Bible, works all the way through. The point at the top, the point at the bottom, they mirror each other, and they keep mirroring each other all the way in until there's one central point that's made that's not repeated anywhere else. And that central point in this story is that God remembers Noah. So that is, that is the summary of, of how it works. The first half, we see all of this judgment building up. We see that um, earth is to be des destroyed. We see that Noah is to build the ark. They're waiting for the flood. The flood happens and everything is destroyed. And it's all building up through judgment. And then after God remembers Noah, we see the waters go down. Um, the, dove, the dove, we have the famous passage of the dove sort of showing peace by returning with the olive branch in its mouth. Um, the waters subside. Eventually they leave the ark and his covenant is made with God. But the hinge point in that story is that God remembers Noah. At the very center of the narrative, that is the most important thing. And all of those, pass those parts of judgment the only, way, only reason that that stops is because God chooses to remember Noah, the person that he has chosen to bring salvation to humanity and his family. So remember once again that sin is trying to control us, but God is always trying to reach out to us. God judges sin, but he never goes back on his word and destroys humanity. If you remember back in chapter 3 of Genesis that Andy covered, there's this promise at the end that the serpent in the garden's head would be crushed by a descendant of Adam and Eve. And God holds that promise. He doesn't wipe out humanity because if he did, he wouldn't be able to fulfill that promise. He's being faithful to the people that he's created. He persists in trying to know us, the people, the people who have brought the sin into the world. And this doesn't change across the Bible. So next we look at Genesis 8, which uh, shows us kind of the verdict on the flood. It shows sort of where this leaves us after these events have happened. They've come out of the ark and God's sort of making a covenant with them. And God gives his verdict on the situation as Noah leaves the ark and offers sacrifices to him. After that, the world was a better place. Everyone lived in harmony and the problem of sin was solved forever. Obviously, it doesn't say that at all. And you'd expect with a salvation story that it'd be kind of, there'd be a line drawn underneath it, that it's all fixed now, it's finished, it's all done. You know, God's had his chosen saviour, saviour being Noah's saved everyone in the earth. But we're reminded if we look back and think about Cain, that there's this power of sin that's inside of us. And however much you destroy people on the outside, it doesn't deal with the problems that are inside. And this is a lingering issue. But the story isn't oblivious to this. It really directly acknowledges it. In chapter 8, verse 21, it says, 
The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, this is just because Noah had made a sacrifice to him. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. That's good. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. You may just think, well, what's all that about? That's really, really strange. You'd expect it to be like, well, after all that, has it solved everything? Noah saved humanity, but it was a lesser salvation. And we're meant to be looking forward to something better and more permanent. Sure, it fixed and solved some of the issues that were there and perhaps the extreme extent to, to which humanity had fallen, but it hasn't fixed anything by any means. It's, it's still showing us that as we go across scripture, um, eventually there will need to be a permanent solution to this much further down the line in the story. So the remainder of chapter eight and nine shows us the agreements that God has made with Noah. Um, he promises never to destroy the earth at the flood um, he commissions Noah to repopulate the earth. Life is starting again. It's like creation has restarted again. And he says in 9 verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all the life on the earth be destroyed by waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And this is the first instance we have of what's called a covenant agreement. We'll see this many, many times. Um, and it's a way that God reaches out to mankind to show how he's going to interact with them. And when God makes a covenant, it's always trustworthy on his end. Obviously, we will see many times people going astray from the covenants that he has made with them. We're left with this picture of a renewed hope. And we're left also with a picture of a sense of foreboding. If evil isn't destroyed and people are still fallen, what's going to happen next? Um, in a couple of the stories proceeding from these chapters, which I'm not going to cover, um, we see Noah immediately get drunk on the wine that he's, he's grown and then he curses one of his sons and it, it's, it, immediately we see that sin's coming back into place. And then a couple of chap a chapters or so later, we see the Tower of Babel where mankind are uniting again in a way which is not honoring God and which is actually trying to raise up human pride to say that they're something and they're trying to reach up to heaven. So we do see these hints straight away of problems developing. But yeah, as I say, we left this problem of what's going to happen next. But I'd like us to look at our big picture timeline again. And I'd like us just to zoom out and look at these stories. How does this story fit into the picture of the whole Bible itself? Um, firstly, at three points, it looks ahead to Jesus. As we said, Noah is a picture of Jesus, a faithful person who obeyed God for the salvation of humanity. But as we've mentioned, this salvation was imperfect. We know that even afterwards, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. So meaning as human beings, we're naturally determined to go our own way and the flood doesn't change it. So if we look much later on our timeline, we have to skip ahead to the coming of Jesus and the continuation of Jesus at sections at the end here. And these show us that uh, ultimately the answer to the problems we have with sin couldn't be solved by the flood, but they are solved much later by Jesus. And clearly, in the beginning here, we're seeing our need for him. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, verse 20, uh, Noah's flood is used as a picture of baptism. This water, the flood, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not by removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's looking back in time and saying, this was a form of salvation, but now we have the more perfect version. When we're baptized, it's as if we're experiencing that sort of death from the flood. 
and actually it's symbolizing that we have died and that God has given us new life through Jesus. Secondly, this passage looks ahead to final judgment. The story also points us to the very end of the story, as our timeline puts it, to the consummation of Jesus right at the end. Jesus refers back to this time of Noah when he's actually talking about the end times. And he says this in Matthew 24, 37 to 39. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days, as before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day before Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. We have this clear picture that while evil is not dealt with initially, it will be destroyed in the end. And that it's very easy to live as the people in Noah's time did, with absolute obliviousness towards God, where we don't recognize or acknowledge who he is. Um, But clearly, we can see that the end result of that is judgment. Without Jesus, that is our end. In verses very similar to those about Cain's struggle with evil, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians uh, 5.16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not free to do whatever you want. There's this idea that actually, um, as Christians, we now have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, showing us the right way to go. Um, And we have the help of God helping us to get there. The fight remains, but we're fighting it with God on our side. God ultimately brings a solution to these problems we see in the beginning. And finally, it shows us that God is faithful. God's grief at humanity in chapter 6 doesn't lead him to reject us. He knows how people have fallen. He doesn't abandon them. He makes a covenant and agreement to clearly set out his intentions to mankind, not to destroy them in that way again. At various stages of our timeline, we see these covenant agreements with people, and God always sticks by them, not least in his promise to one day provide a savior. And I read this earlier, I actually read this earlier this week in Psalm 12, verse 6, and it says, The promises of the Lord are the promises of the Lord are promises that are pure, silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. We can be sure that God is faithful in our everyday lives. It's something that we can be absolutely convinced of. The only only agent in this story that is not doing that is humankind, but we can rely on God. His promises are pure, his promises are true and faithful. And I think my conclusion to this is really that God is tirelessly reaching out to us as human beings, not just back then, but now as well. And the God that we see back in the beginning here is the same God as we see much later in the parable of the prodigal son, where God is a father that's willing to accept his children back even after they've done horrendous things and to actually change them and make them into something new again. It's the same picture we see of God at the beginning of Genesis. He's reaching out to us. He's breaking the ice. He's initiating. He's reinitiating the relationship, trying to get us and trying to get our attention back on him so that we can be restored to this beautiful picture that we had right at the beginning with God. God is always committed to restoring a relationship with us. So next week, Andy will be leading us into the final section of our timeline. Uh, not final section, not by any means. That's, uh, that's a long way off. Uh, but the next, the next section before we really get into um, some of the other major covenants that God makes, it's a sort of transitional period showing that the showing the beginning of God's relationship with Abraham and the massive impact that that has on everything 
afterwards. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.